Hello, Michelle Laurie here. It's no secret that Australia's property market is out of control these days, but I, for one, can't seem to stop following along. I've become a bit obsessed with it, to be honest. What's up, what's down, and who on earth is paying those prices for those houses? So I want to personally recommend a podcast for you. It's called Real Property. It'll keep you across the latest information on the Australian property market in a clear and easy-to-digest way. Real Property, building a community of more informed property buyers. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to (laughs) pretend that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Mel. Bry here. Gotta work from home today because the whole family caught a nasty. Daddy! Hey, Mikey! If you're gonna puke, find the popcorn bowl! But my availability is 110%. Coincidentally, so is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, but I'm gonna get you that budget just as soon as. Right. Mikey! Popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart. Brian. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. Welcome to Crime Fiction Friday with Emily Webb, where I explore the minds that bring us wicked, terrifying and chilling best-selling reads. Ellery Kane's life is non-stop crime. By day, Ellery is a forensic psychologist and she evaluates prison inmates in California, most of whom have committed murder or another serious crime and have been in jail for a very long time and are coming up for parole. Then she's writing thrillers with her profession providing no end of inspiration. Ellery is the author of the detective thriller series featuring criminal psychologist Olivia Rockwell and detective Will Decker. Ellery and I spoke about her fascinating career and I couldn't help of thinking of Clarice Starling and Holden Ford and Bill Tench from Mindhunter. But before I get more carried away, let's hear some of Ellery's first book in the Rockwell and Decker series, Watch Her Vanish. Olivia hesitated outside the door of the chapel. No one should be afraid to set foot in a church, but Olivia was terrified, frankly, and with good reason. Every time she'd pushed open those heavy oak doors, crossed the threshold, and seated herself in a pew, something terrible had happened. It started on the day her mother had forced her into a dress and itchy white tights, and dragged her into church near their apartment in the Double Rock Projects, where they dropped to their knees to pray. That very night, the jury had returned with their decision. Guilty. And the police carted her father away to the place he still called home. Prison. Ellery 
Mary Kane, it is great to speak to you for Crime Fiction Friday. I've started reading your book, Watch Her Vanish, and it's really good. It's, it's introducing us to a criminal psychologist, Olivia Rockwell. Tell us about what you do in your day-to-day life as well as write best-selling books. Similar to Olivia Rockwell, I am also a forensic psychologist in my day job. So I drew a lot of the inspiration for Olivia from my own work. And basically what I do as a forensic psychologist is to evaluate inmates who have been incarcerated, most of them for very long periods of time. And I'm assessing their risk for violence in order to help parole boards make decisions about whether or not these inmates will be released. It's very clear from reading your book that you do have a lot of good experience with the prison system. And I'm very interested in that, in issues of, you know, criminal justice, crime and punishment, I think. And it's a very interesting and also quite controversial topic for the public, isn't it? I mean, what you do, you know, you've got a real weight of decision on your shoulders. For sure. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the most challenging aspects of my job is really being able to balance, one, the need for public safety, which is a big impetus of of why my job exists, is to help the parole board make decisions to keep the public safe, but also balancing that with the inmates' rights as well. So they have indeterminate sentences, which mean that they do have the opportunity for parole. If they can demonstrate that they no longer pose a risk to the community, then they should, in fact, be let out. So it's it's trying to balance those two things and not sort of just putting someone in prison and throwing away the key forever, but allowing them to, to have a, a new life and, and potentially a better life where they can impact the community in a positive way, but also keeping in mind that we want to keep people safe. So what kind of offenses are committed by people who have an indeterminate sentence, the people you work with? So it's usually serious crimes. I work in the state of California. So typically those crimes in California would include murder, attempted murder, robbery, and kidnapping are some of the more common ones. We also work with the third strike population. And this is something that um, some of your listeners might not be familiar with because it's kind of a unique thing to the U.S., I I believe. Um, So the third strike law refers to three serious felonies and you're out, meaning that if you commit three serious felonies, you get a indeterminate sentence and then you have to prove that you're eligible for parole, just like you would if you had committed a murder or a robbery. So I also see some of those folks as well. But for the most part, the men that I'm evaluating have committed violent crime. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the third strike policy. I, I know a bit about it and look, we're, we're probably aware in Australia of it because of the the American content television that we and movies that we watch. Yeah, our system's completely different because apart from, look, very, very serious, serious, serious crimes, there are offenders who they're behind bars for life, but generally in our system, people do have a reasonable expectation of having a chance at parole. So a long Mm -hmm. sentence would be probably 30 plus years and then, you know, going down. So yeah, it's very, very different. That must be really interesting to work with people on three strike convictions as opposed to say a serial killer or a, a serious sex offender. I mean, some of these offenders may have committed like drug offenses. Is that, am I right in saying that? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And you're, you're totally right. It's, It is very different, but in many ways, they share a lot of characteristics. You probably would be surprised. One of the things I noticed about the third strike inmates is that a lot of them tend to be older when they come to prison. And so they have more established lives of crime. So these are more like your career criminals. And even though they may be incarcerated, you know, for life for something that's seemingly very minor, like possession of drugs or burglary or even a a potential parole violation, many of them do have violent histories. And oftentimes they are much more entrenched in a criminal way of life, which is probably surprising for most people because most people think, well, wait a minute, a murderer, they must be more criminal than somebody that's, you know, in for a drug offense. But oftentimes it works out the other way because 
usually the, the murderers tend to be on the younger side for the most part when they come into prison. And so they've had less time in the community to establish some of those criminal ways. It usually ends up that the third strikers could even have a higher risk potentially than, than the murderers, which is probably surprising. Yeah, that is surprising. That's interesting. With the younger people who've been convicted, say murderers, is that got anything to do with impulsivity, drug and alcohol, and just brain general brain development? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So in California, we actually have a new law, and it's been around for a few years now, that requires that the parole board give special consideration to youthful offenders. And so even though the, the men that I evaluate, they've usually been in prison, like you said, 30 plus years, many of them committed their crimes when they were you know, between the ages of 16 and 25. And we know that, we know from research that during those, that period of time, the brain is still developing. And especially for men, because they develop a little bit more slowly than women, we know that there is that, the impulsivity factor, the idea that they're not able to fully appreciate the consequences of what they're doing. They don't have as good cognitive problem-solving skills as somebody with a more mature maturely developed brain. So now the parole board has to actually give special consideration to that, um, which I think is, is great. I think that that makes sense given what we know about the brain. But one thing that we also have to look at is how has that person matured over time? So, you know, I have had inmates that I've evaluated who the youthful offender idea is very applicable to them. So they committed their crime, let's say when they were 16, 17, And then over time, they have desisted from that. They are now pro-social. They have a job. They do programming. They're just a completely different person. They're not getting into trouble. And you can really see that, yes, it was limited to that period of time when their brain was still developing and they were still just figuring things out. And contrast that to somebody who has also come into prison at age 17, but who has continued to remain impulsive antisocial, getting into trouble all the time, getting into fights. So the, the youthful offender idea is going to, to not really play too strongly in their chances for parole because they've just continued to act the same in prison. So how do you decide how an inmate is a risk for violence? So what are the things that you need to consider when you're assessing? Is it mostly men you assess? Do you assess women as well? We do assess women as well. Um, The way that that my particular job works is that we get assigned um, to different prisons. And so the prisons that I happen to get assigned to are typically male institutions. I've evaluated a couple of women at this point, but by and large, our our population is much more male. And that just makes sense given the statistics, uh, you know, overwhelmingly, there are a lot more men in prison for violent crime and a lot more male lifers in prison. But in terms of going about assessing risk for violence, we rely heavily on science and what we know the factors are that contribute to violence. And those factors are historical factors, so things in that person's past that might potentially lead to future violence. Um, So, for example, in that category, things like past violence. So if they've been violent in the past, there's the idea, you know, the, the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. To a certain extent, that is true. If they have a ton of violence in their past, you're probably going to be more likely to see that person be violent in the future. Things like substance abuse, as you mentioned earlier, that's also a historical factor that we look at, the person's upbringing. And then there are clinical factors, which are the current dynamic factors that are susceptible to change. So those are things like insight impulsivity or instability. And then we look at future factors, so future planning. So what kinds of plans does that person have for the community? Do they have realistic plans? Do they have any plans at all? Do their plans capture what we know about their risk factors? So if they've had a real problem with substance abuse, do they have a plan to participate in treatment? If they have problems with mental illness, are they going to take their medication So we really look at those three areas, and um, those three areas are encapsulated by this particular measure that we psychologists know as the HCR-20. And so we, we use that really as the backbone of how we conduct our risk assessment. 
Are you able to share, obviously, with you'd have to de-identify details, but are you able to share an example or a few examples of people that you've worked with over the years that their particular situations really stick out in your mind of may or may have influenced your writing? Obviously, not using names or anything, but yeah, I'm just really fascinated to know about if the the people you work with, you know, some of them stick in your mind, they stay with you. Yes, they, <laughs> there definitely are some that stick with you. And there's there are often um, inmates that I evaluate and I make a note to myself that I want to follow up and, and see what happened because we don't oftentimes get the opportunity to, we don't attend the parole hearings, so we don't really know unless we go looking to see what happened at the parole hearings. But there are definitely times that I, I make a note to myself check on Mr. So-and-so because I, you know, I want to see what, what ended up happening with him. I think there are aspects of a lot of cases that I use as inspiration for my writing. Um, I wouldn't say there's like one particular case that stands out. I can talk about some recent examples that are fresh in my mind. Um, uh, Just so you get an idea kind of, of, of what it's like. So, so recently I did a risk assessment with a man who was in the Aryan Brotherhood, which is a prison gang in California that is really founded on white supremacy. And this particular individual had been in prison, I want to say 25 to 30 years. He hadn't really had many problems with gangs in the community, but when he came to prison, he really got into this gang lifestyle and he actually advanced up the ranks and became a high ranking leader in the AB. And over time, he became even more violent than he had when he came to prison. He actually happened to be a third striker uh, whose offense that brought him to prison was burglary. So even though he, when he came to prison, he didn't seem to be a particularly violent individual. And you would, if you had evaluated him then, you might have said his risk for violence was low. But over time, as he became entrenched in in the gang life, he ended up not only committing violence in prison, but also ordering violence in prison. Um, So he had committed an attempted murder of another inmate um, while he was incarcerated. And then he had also admitted to ordering a number of murders and assaults of other inmates. So a few years prior to when I met with him, this particular man decided that he was done with the gang. I think his concerns about his own safety and his kind of falling out with the gang leadership really led to that decision. And he ended up doing something that in California, we refer to it as debriefing, which basically means that you go before the institutional gang investigators and you tell them everything that you ever did with the gang and you tell them everything you know about the gang. So you pretty much rat out your whole, your whole gang (laughs) and everything that you've ever done, Um, which, you know, if you're, if you're in a gang, that's like probably the last thing that that you want to do. And that's, sort of like an instant death sentence. So as soon as you debrief, you get moved to the sensitive needs yard for your own protection. So he had debriefed from the gang. And so what you might expect is that when he debriefed from the gang, his violence stopped, but it didn't. So he continued to have a lot of behavioral issues, continued to be really nasty to the correctional staff and just have a, have a really hard time getting along with other people. So you could see that he really hadn't made the changes that you would expect from this decision to debrief. So he ended up being a high risk, not only based on his past, he just wasn't able to control his temper and wasn't able to manage his behavior in an appropriate way. So you could just see how that was going to continue to cause a problem for him in the institution. And if he got out, certainly with people in the streets. That's so fascinating. I must admit, look, I I know a bit about that from watching crime documentaries and a lot of law and order and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, to, it, it's, it's um, well, particularly at the moment, isn't it? Um, anything about white supremacy is very topical as it's resurging a lot. I mean, my understanding of um, gang affiliations, a lot of that came from watching the prison series Oz, which mm-hmm. scared the hell out of me. I don't know how <laughs> realistic that series is, but I'm like, yeah, that was pretty intense. Wow, that's so fascinating. You I guess you don't know what you're going to get every day when you turn up to work. That's true. That's one of the things that I love about my job. You, you never know what the person sitting across from you is going to be like. And 
a lot of times you have an expectation based on what you read in the record. So before I ever meet the, the inmate, I will do a thorough record review. So I know a lot about them when I meet with them. I know why they're in prison. I know their criminal history. If they've had prior evaluations, I know how those have gone. But still, I really oftentimes find myself surprised because a lot of times you're, you're forming a judgment based on how that person was like 30 years ago. And you have this picture in your mind. And then when you see them, um, which is one of the things that everyone you know, asks me, like, what's it like to sit across from a murderer? Um, but when you see them, it's really like sitting across from your, your grandfather. So this is this, uh, usually an elderly man who's very polite um, because they know, that they know that what they're doing in this evaluation is important. So they're going to be on their best behavior. And so it's, it can really be jarring the juxtaposition between what's in file information and then what, what you're sitting across from. Is it true of what we see in, you know, books and television and movies? And also you've got a character in your book that I'm reading at the moment who's a very, I would say, kind of charming criminal. Is that, is that true that some criminals have got a real charm factor in terms of, I guess, maybe manipulating people or getting them to do what they want. Is that, is that a fair thing to say? Yes. I would definitely say that there is a percentage of the inmates that I meet with who are very charming. Oftentimes are, you know, very good storytellers. And you can generally, you sort of see this right away when you, when you meet with them, because they would be the inmates that want to give you a lot of praise. Like, oh, you know, you're the only psychologist I've ever shared this with because you're, you're so great at interviewing. Or they might go off on these long stories that paint themselves in a very positive light. So these kinds of charming characteristics we definitely see. They're probably not as common as you think, though. I would say that that person that is is really conning and manipulative and, and sort of glib and charming is a lesser percentage than the person that's just presenting normally. And, and I think that's because, you know, that, that charming kind of guy is more typical of what we think of when we think of a psychopath. So someone who's going to present one way, but, but be very manipulative and, and sort of evil and dark on the inside all the while where they're, while they're sort of shining you on. I was going to, that's a great um, segue into a question I have about, you know, psychopaths and sociopaths. I feel like we maybe get confused with the terminologies and I'm of course thinking of people like your Ted Bundy's in my mind when I think of I don't know if he was a psychopath or a sociopath, but what, what's the difference? And like, have you had experience working with people who've got this, is it a diagnosis, I guess, or this brain chemistry? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so psychopaths, right? This is like a hot button topic. Everybody, you know, wants to know if they are dating a psychopath, if their boss is a psychopath, like there's all these quizzes that you can find online. It always makes me laugh. So generally the, the, the teaching now is that sociopath is sort of an outdated term. And the term really is psychopath. So the psychopath would be the, the umbrella term that we use currently. And the way that we assign this, it's really not a diagnosis because it's not in the, the DSM-5, which is our diagnostic manual, but it is something that we definitely look at when we are assessing risk because we know that people that have characteristics of a psychopath would be more likely to go on to commit violence. So we are administering something called the PCLR, um, which was developed by Robert Hare. And he was kind of the godfather of psychopathy. He developed everything that we, that we know in psychology about psychopaths. And so we administered this measure. And it does look at things like you were asking about being manipulative, being charming and conning. These are, are items that we look at on the psychopathy checklist. But in terms of the population of inmates that I see, Psychopaths are very rare. So for all the, you know, at this point, upwards of a thousand men that I've evaluated, I would say only a handful would actually meet the criteria for psychopathy at this point. So most murderers, as hard as it is to believe, are are really pretty normal um, and don't have a lot of psychopathology uh, aside from perhaps antisocial personality disorder, which is, you know, when someone has trouble following the rules of society. So not everybody with antisocial personality disorder is a psychopath. And we do know, as you were saying about the brain, we do know that there are some differences in the brains of people that 
have been found to meet the criteria for psychopathy. So they have um, reduced connections um, in the parts of the brain that are responsible for guilt and for empathy. And so we know that there are actual physiological reasons why psychopaths do what they do. So it really is a fascinating topic. I am grateful that I don't have to see that many psychopaths <laughs> um, because, you know, mm-hmm. they're, they're not fun to interview. So I'm, I'm pretty thankful mm-hmm. that most of the guys that I see are, are, are pretty, quote unquote, normal. But, but every now and again, you do get one person that, you know, gives you a little bit of a, a chill. In what way are they difficult to interview? Is it because they're quite smart or? Yes. So what you'll see is this combination of antisocial personality disorder, which is, you know, where you can't follow the rules. You'll see that in combination with sort of a narcissistic personality disorder. So you think you're kind of above it all. And so they can be very difficult to rein in and they oftentimes want to take control of the interview. So you, as an interviewer, you find yourself working very hard to ask the questions that you want to ask and get the information that you need because they want to direct the interview where they want it to go. And it can, at times it can be contentious even, you know, if you do challenge them, um, it can become a little bit argumentative or they can sort of, you know, turn on you and and become very critical. So it, it can just be challenging to take the interview on the course that you want it to go. I know a lot of A new year is full of surprises, but one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take care of orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM. For a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code program. I also do a true crime podcast and I know anytime we talk about anything about serial killers, anything mm-hmm. that we're talking about now, people are really interested. So to define like in our popular kind of cultural understanding, who would we know who are 100% psychopath. So I mentioned Ted Bundy. I mean, is he a psychopath? I would say, so of course I haven't evaluated any of these people <laughs> and I haven't, I haven't scored the PCLR for any of them, but yes, if I'm, if I'm thinking about psychopaths, my mind would probably instantly go to Ted Bundy. I think he is a, a pretty good example just because he did have that charming facade right? And then and it disguised everything that was going on underneath. And there was sort of an air of, of narcissism. I think many serial killers generally are going to fall under that umbrella of psychopaths. But the interesting thing about the, the PCLR, the instrument that we use to assign a, a diagnosis of psychopathy, is that it, it's pretty stringent. So the criteria are not easily met. Um, so you really have to have someone who has a lot of criminal history. So they have to they have to be criminally versatile, do a lot of different kinds of crimes. They might, you know, have to have a juvenile criminal history, um, early behavior problems. They have to be hitting on a lot of these cylinders to get a score that is high enough to put them truly in that psychopathic range. So it's it's not something that is easily achievable, which is why you see like, for example, the gentleman that I talked about, the man who debriefed from the Aryan Brotherhood, he had a slightly higher score on this PCLR instrument than most of the um, inmates that I see, but he was not in the psychopathic range, you know, and here's a guy who's, he's done a lot of violence. He's done a lot of bad things. He didn't have a lot of remorse, didn't have a lot of empathy, um, but even he is not falling into that range. So it's, it's a pretty tough bar to meet. So when you do see somebody that meets that bar, it's definitely a person you want to steer clear of. 
Mm, yeah, sounds like it. Have you ever assessed a serial killer or a multiple, like a mass killer or multiple murderer? I've never assessed a serial killer in the sense that we know a serial killer, you know, someone who really has this kind of almost a, a pathological need or compulsion to kill. And, and there's the kind of the the period in between where they're sort of not doing anything and then it builds, 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 and they commit another crime. I've certainly assessed men who have killed more than one person, if not anybody in that true serial killer sense. And I think the reason for that is that, well, one, it's very rare, but two, a true serial killer very rarely would receive an indeterminate sentence. So they would more likely receive life without parole, right? Or even the death penalty. So it's not something that that we see a lot because these are men that, that do have the opportunity for parole. With that said, I have seen many serial sexual offenders. So that is much more common in my particular job than, than a serial killer. Um, and it's usually, you know, when you see the serial sexual predators, that happens because they get very light sentences their first few times. So we might see a guy who started committing rapes when he was 18. And the first time he committed a rape, he got a two-year sentence. And then he was back out and he committed another rape and he got a five-year sentence and then back out and on and on until he has now committed whatever the life crime is that has put him in with a, an indeterminate life sentence. But I think it's the, the sentencing that we see there um, really allows for sexual offenders to repeat. Yeah, that's a really um, interesting topic because do you think that's a reflection of sexual offences not being taken as seriously or are they being taken more seriously now? What's your, what's your um, experience in that? I think they're definitely taken a lot more seriously now. In terms of just anecdotally, I don't have any real evidence to support this, but just what I've seen from the inmates that I've evaluated and, and their, their parole outcomes, like whether they've received parole or not, I think it's a lot harder for a sexual offender to establish that they are ready to go back out into the community. And one of the reasons for that is that, you know, let's say that you get, you commit your, let's say you commit a murder. And the reason that you commit a murder is because you have a real problem with anger. And then you get to prison and you take a bunch of anger management classes and you don't get into any fights with anybody. And then you can go to the parole board and say, look, I have addressed my problem with anger, but sexual offenses are a little bit different because If you committed a sexual offense, there's really not a lot of treatment programming in our California prisons anyway, specific to sexual offenders. There's very little. And they're also not exposed in the same way to potential victims as they would be out in the community. So you can't really, if you're a sex offender, you can't really go to the parole board and say with certainty that you're not going to do this again because they're, you know, they're saying, well, you don't have access to victims here. And you haven't done any programming here. So how can we be sure? So it's, it's actually a lot harder even to conduct those risk assessments and make decisions about risk in those cases because of that. It's, it's well known that, you know, people leaving prison or jail, there are many challenges for them in reintegrating into society. And it's often about the support services they have. But what are some of the other, I guess, unique challenges for people, probably mainly men, leaving prison and integrating into society. And also, I guess, you know, if you're a sexual offender, I mean, presumably you're going to have to report in your, your listed on the sexual offenders list. And, and that's searchable, isn't it, in America? You can Google who's a sex offender in your area. That We don't have that in Australia. So um, a lot of people would like it, but yeah, we don't have it. So what are some of the particular challenges for inmates? So this is a great, great topic. And I actually, one of my other books that I wrote in another series called the Doctors of Darkness series, this particular book is called The Hanging Tree. And it's all about a lifer who gets out of prison and is on parole and and sort of the challenges that he faces. And it was really my favorite character that I've ever written because I was able to take all the experiences you know, of all the, the lifers that I've met and, and sort of imagine what it would be like for one of those guys to get out. And, you know, it's funny that a lot of times when I, because I always ask them, what challenges do you think you're going to face? 
when you get out. And it, it, it just always amazes me how many of the inmates say none or they can't think of anything, um, which is just shocking to me because the challenges are abundant. So one, many of these guys came into prison 30 plus years ago. So clearly the world has evolved. The world has changed. Uh, technology has changed in ways that we can't even imagine what it would be like, you know, and they're sort of stuck like a fly in amber, you know, and, and it's sad. And, and also ironically funny, a lot of them will tell me, you know, when I ask about jobs and things like that, they'll say, well, I'm going to go back to the job that I had before. I'm going to go back to that employer and I'm going to ask if he will take me back. And it's almost like they're, they don't have a sense that time has passed because they, they've been developing in a much more limited way. So certainly technology, and that's one that a lot of them will say, like learning to use cell phones, learning to use computers, that kind of thing. They, they really don't have a sense of some of the more nuanced challenges, like even reintegrating with your family. You know, so a lot of inmates will tell me that they want to go straight to live with their spouse. Okay, well, have you ever lived with your spouse? No, we met while I was in prison. <laughs> so, you know, and another fascinating area. Exactly. And, you know, sometimes their spouse has kids in the house. And what is that going to be like? You're, you're going to be going from prison and you're going to be an instant stepdad. You know, that's not going to be stressful. <laughs> so just helping them kind of think through what are going to be the potential stresses in their life is certainly an issue. And then in terms of sex offenders, the challenges are even greater. Before I did this particular job, I actually worked in an agency where I provided treatment and assessment for sex offenders. And so I did get a chance to see men that were coming out of prison on high-risk sex offender parole. And they faced incredible challenges. It really changed my thinking about sexual offenders in many ways because we have a lot of these laws in place in the U.S. that we think are supposed to keep us safe and prevent offenses, but they make it so difficult for sex offenders to find places to live that are allowable under the law that they many times become homeless. And it's just a significant stressor. And, you know, when, when people are under stress, they tend to revert to their old behavior patterns. So certainly that, that is a big concern for, for sex offenders is even just finding a place to live. You did mention, I, I'm going to just get you to talk a bit about this before we move on to more about your writing, about women or people who form relationships with people in jail. I find that intriguing and I, I've been watching the Night Stalker documentary on Netflix and obviously this uh, Richard Ramirez mm-hmm. had a lot of groupies, which is gross, and Ted Bundy had them. And But I find it really intriguing about women who form relationships with men behind bars who may have a reasonable expectation of release, but some who won't. What's your experience or maybe views on that? Yeah, I, that's, it's so fascinating to me as well. Um, and there's, there's so many different types of these kinds of relationships. So, you know, there are the types the, the more normal type where the person has already had a relationship with the, with the woman and then they go to prison and, and, you know, that's more understandable. Okay. They stay together, but the ones where, you know, the, the, the inmate will put himself on, they have pen pal sites where people can write in mm. um, and, and, you know, and these women write in and a lot of times they tend to be elderly or older women who are probably lonely and looking for a connection and sometimes more vulnerable to manipulation by these inmates. So that that's a typical question that I ask now um, because I have been burned in the past when I've learned about the age of the partner of, of a couple of inmates. So whenever they tell me that they formed a, a pen pal romance, I will always ask, well, how old is the woman? Because sometimes it's, you know, that the, the inmate is 45 and the woman is 70. And, you know, and so then I'll ask a lot of questions about, like, how viable is this relationship outside of prison? And, you know, and, and it varies about how insightful they are, the inmate is as to whether they will acknowledge um, that, that this is really a relationship um, kind of, of convenient. And it, and it might be convenience on both sides, you know, and, and there are some, sometimes the, the inmate will get involved with a woman who maybe has a, a real history of bad relationships. And so in a way, though this is probably not a healthy relationship, it's, it is a safe relationship 
because there is this idea that, you know, the, it's very difficult to get parole and your romantic partner may never be released. So you can have connection, but it's connection at a distance. And actually I had an inmate that told me he had a relationship. Um, it was also with a, a slightly older female and they had a relationship for many years, like 10 plus years. And when he had revealed to her that he believed he had a, now a chance at parole, she immediately ended the relationship because it was probably going to be too, too close. You know, when he started talking about like, so can I come and live with you when I get out? Um, that, that became a little bit too, too close for comfort. And then of course there are the women who just seem sort of obsessed or intrigued by these kinds of bad boys. And, and you can't help but think that they have some sort of trauma in their past that they're, they're trying to work out. Um, by, you know, becoming attracted to these, these individuals. Yeah. And I also think it could be extremely dangerous for these women having these men come back into their lives because they don't really know them. Like they know them in terms of communication. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I always ask too is, you know, about like, so, so a lot of times guys that have murdered or committed a sexual offense, but murdered a partner or a girlfriend, and then now they have a new girlfriend, <laughs> you know, like, so have you told this woman that you are in prison for murdering your, you know, your girlfriend or your spouse? In my mind, I'm always thinking, and sometimes I will even ask the guy, depending on how egregious his offense or history is, do you ever question your girlfriend's judgment that she is wanting to be with you? Because to a certain extent, you you, ha- you know, you, you have to, you have to question that person's judgment. Like, what, what are they thinking that they want to go and partner with somebody that killed their last partner? <laughs> and even more, more extreme, I think, and I, I do understand the particular, like people are baffled and angry and just can't get it. How women who form relationships with men who've abused children. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting area because it's like, how could you form a relationship or allow someone around your children who is either violent or, you know, has sexually offended. I think a lot of people have a particular anger towards the woman, you know, as mm-hmm. well as the as the man who's the offender. I find that a bit mm-hmm. bizarre that women would do that, I guess. I completely agree. Yeah. I'm, I've had a few cases like that actually where the man killed the, the woman's children, our child, and she stayed in the relationship even after that. They stayed together. So those cases, it's just, it's hard to fathom. It's, it's hard for me to, you know, even as a psychologist, it's, it's hard for me to really get inside that person's head and, and understand what is driving their behavior. So you obviously have quite a busy job and you're writing, you've written a lot of books. So how, how did you get into writing? How did you start off? Well, so I've always loved writing, all kinds of writing. And um, I grew up writing a lot of short stories and kind of in my mind, always thinking that I wanted to write a book someday. And actually my minor in undergrad was in English. So probably if I wasn't a psychologist, I would be like an English professor or something. And when I started my, my career as a forensic psychologist, there's a lot of writing involved. The reports that I write are like usually around 15 pages long and I'm seeing about eight inmates a month. So that's a lot of a lot of writing to produce. So there was a period of time where I really sort of told myself, like, I don't have time, even though I want to be creatively writing, I just don't have time. But I always knew in the back of my mind that it was something that I was passionate about, that it was something that, you know, there are those things that you do that you just really feel the most alive when you're doing it. And for me, that's always been writing and, and really it's always been creative writing. So I got to a point around 2014 where I just, decided, you know what, I need to do this. Like I I can't put it off any longer. I just have to do it. And it's funny how when you decide that you, that you're going to do something, you sort of make time for it. As I've gone along in my writing journey, I have realized that it's kind of important for me to write something creatively every day. And if I can just write a little bit every day, those words add up to a book in, in months, which is pretty cool. So, you know, I've just been kind of balancing the two. And there are definitely days when I only write a, a little bit because I have a lot going on in my, my other job. Um, and there are days when, when I have a lot more time and I can, I can write a lot more. 
writers are usually big readers. We know that. What books for you have been influential in your life as a reader and a writer? Gosh, I think it's hard. It's always hard for me to pick books. And this is a question I, I thought about. I was like, I just can't pick one book. I feel like it's constantly changing as I'm reading new things. I'm like, oh, wow, I really love that book. Or I really love that book. Um, but I think in terms of authors, Stephen King is one that I have always loved. And, you know, as great as his horror stuff is, I really enjoyed his series, The Green Mile, which follows a, a man who is convicted of a crime. And it's a lot about his experience in prison. And I just remember being so emotionally impacted by that book. I actually read it with my mom. And I remember both of us just crying. And it's a series as well. I also like James Patterson. I think I kind of steal a little bit from him in terms of his short chapters and kind of always ending with a kind of a cliffhanger in each chapter. I, I try to I try to model that. Jillian Flynn is another one. I mean, Gone Girl is like, <laughs> you know, I, I actually listened. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, amazing. I listened to that book on audio and I was actually driving back and forth to the prison to do interviews with inmates when I listened to that book. And, and I just remember sort of when the twist comes, like I was driving, I was like, wait a minute. And I had to rewind a little bit to go back and just make sure I heard it correctly. So she, you know, she's great. And all of her other books are, are incredible. And, and I think Joyce Carol Oates too. Um, she's one that I've really oh, loved yes. since I was a kid and reading her short stories in my AP English class. She just has a, a way with words that just like hits you in the gut. So those are a few of my few of my favorites. Fabulous authors. Yeah, I love Dark Places by Gillian Flynn. I really love that book. I'm actually listening to on audiobook because I'm I'm doing a lot of listening to audiobooks. So Watch Her Vanish and that introduces us to Olivia Rockwell. Tell us a little bit about Olivia because she's your main character in this some um, series. So Olivia has sort of a, a dark and traumatic past, as many of my characters do. She grew up in the projects in San Francisco and her dad was a high ranking member in a gang. And when she was about eight years old, she witnessed or thought she witnessed her dad commit a heinous crime. And after that, her dad went to prison and really throughout her growing up, he has been in prison serving an indeterminate sentence like the men that I evaluate. And that's really influenced her to want to better understand murderers want to better understand why people do what they do. So that's sort of why she gets into forensic psychology. And she and her mom actually moved to the small town of Fog Harbor to be closer to her dad, who's in prison there. And then as soon as she grows up, she wants to escape. So she goes out to the big city. She, you know, pursues her forensic psychology. She does a little profiling for the FBI. But then when her mom falls ill, she has to be around to help guide her little sister who, who lives back in Fog Harbor. So she returns to Fog Harbor, gets a job as the chief psychologist at Crescent Bay State Prison, which is where our adventures take place. Yeah, it's good. I'm really, really enjoying it. So I'm definitely going to be reading more of the books. How many books have you published? So I have a couple different series. When I originally got back into writing in 2014, I wrote a young adult series. Um, it's a dystopian series set in future San Francisco. There were three in that series. It's called the Legacy Series. And then after that, I really pivoted. I knew that I always wanted to write thrillers, that that was going to be where I was going eventually. And so I started another series called the Doctors of Darkness series. And this series focuses on forensic psychologists or other psychologists, generally doctors, who have something dark going on in their lives or in their past. And all of those books are standalones. And there are four in that series um, right now. And I'm working on writing the fifth one as we speak. And then now I have the Rockwell and Decker series, which is published by Book of Tour. And um, as you mentioned, Watch Her Vanish is the first book in that series. Her Perfect Bones is the second book. And that one is up for pre-order now and coming out. Congratulations. Honestly, I am in awe. It's actually making me more and more want to write more. I've written some nonfiction true crime, but I'm really thinking a lot about fiction. But it's like for me, it's that paralysis of actually 
doing the discipline of writing. I have plenty of notes, but yeah, it's like actually mm-hmm. sitting down. But I figure if you can just write, even writing 500 words is, is okay. It's better than zero words. Exactly. So it's that, that peculiar thing with writing, isn't it, where it's that writer's block or just that fear of putting stuff on it the totally page. It totally is. And trust me, I face writer's paralysis every day. <laughs> so it doesn't, it doesn't go away. <laughs> And, you know, I've, I've read a lot of like quotes and advice about writing and a lot of writers just say, you know, if basically if you wait for the moment when you feel inspired, you're never going to do any writing. And also that when you look back and read your writing, you can't really tell, even though there are moments when you feel inspired and you feel like, oh my God, this is great. You know, there, there are plenty of moments when you don't feel that way. When you go back and look at what you've written you can't really tell which things you wrote when you were feeling amazingly inspired and which things you wrote when it was like pulling teeth. So since I have realized that, that's really helped me because now I just tell myself, you know what, just put the words on the page. And I'm a big perfectionist. Like I do like to, I I don't like to move on until I know that what I've written is like as good as it's going to get for right now. So that does slow me down a little bit. I can't be one of those people that just does like these sprints of writing where they just blah out on the page I, I really have to, to think about all the words, uh, but I agree with you. You just got to like, you just got to put words down and, and just keep going. It's truly amazing. I actually am amazed that I've written that many books. <laughs> if you knew, if you knew how <laughs> slow I can be at times in writing, you would be shocked that, that I, that that many books got produced. I honestly don't even know how it happened. <laughs> Well, I'm I'm absolutely loving your stuff and I'm so thankful for your time today, Ellery Kane, about talking particularly about your work, which is really fascinating. And I think what people really enjoy about talking to authors of crime in particular is like where they draw their inspiration. So you've got inspiration by the mm-hmm. bucket loads for your books and people can find out more from your website, elleriekane.com. All those details will be in our show notes. But thank you so much, Ellery, for joining me today. And it's just wonderful to hear about the kind of really important work you do as well. So thanks a lot. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for downloading Crime Fiction Friday with Emily Webb. You can buy books by today's author and lots more in our bookshop at australiantruecrimepodcast.com. There's a link in our show notes and on the Australian True Crime Facebook page. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network.